0: The criminal justice system has exploded in scope in the last decade. Today, the United States has roughly the same number of people with criminal records as it has four-year college graduates. About one in three adults in our country has a criminal record. The effects of criminalization have infiltrated nearly every aspect of life, because the punishment is far from over once someone leaves prison or jail. Many of the things we take for granted or consider basic necessities are regularly denied to individuals with criminal records. Casting a ballot, making a living cutting hair, fixing ACs, working as a nurse, getting a job, accessing student loans, volunteering at your kid's school, accessing affordable housing. There are more than 44,000 of these state and federal barriers. These collateral consequences span all levels of offenses and even affect those who were never incarcerated. There's little evidence that these barriers keep communities safer, but they do make it harder. Some might say impossible for someone to reintegrate back into society. Just how big is this problem? Over the past half century, the number of people impacted by collateral consequences has surged in lockstep with the massive expansion of our criminal justice system. Nearly half of all U.S. children have a parent with a record. And this burden is disproportionately shouldered by people of color who are far more likely to face arrest. Change is on the horizon. As our nation grapples with the twin challenges of COVID and cries for racial justice, We are seeing bipartisan support grow for ending collateral consequences. I'm Laura Arnold. On today's Deep Dive, we explore the vast and complex web of legal barriers and exclusions that people with criminal records face, the way these barriers reinforce racial inequity, and the implications for society writ large. First, we'll talk to the first formerly incarcerated state lawmaker in the United States, who is leading efforts to reform reintegration nationwide?
1: Unless we allow for opportunities, people are going to commit more crime.
0: Next, we'll hear from a legal advocate who is challenging overregulation and overcriminalization in an effort to safeguard economic liberty.
2: The bars on people with convictions are not really meant to protect the public.
0: And last, we'll hear from a leading sociologist who has studied the myriad difficulties formerly incarcerated people face re-entering society.
3: We need that person to take a positive, active role in society when they eventually come home, because 95% of those folks are going to come home.
0: We begin our conversation with Tara Simmons, Executive Director of the Civil Survival Project and a member of the Washington House of Representatives. Tara has personally experienced the challenges of reintegration and has led efforts to champion reintegration reform in Washington state. Tara, welcome to Deep Dive. Yeah, thanks for having me. You have such a compelling story and background that led you to this effort. Can you share that with us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I came from, you know, generational cycles of poverty and substance use disorder and incarceration. Everybody in my family's been incarcerated and has suffered with substance use disorder. And so, you know, I became a, a teen mom at fifteen years old after I'd been in foster care and had survived trafficking and unfortunately followed in my parents' footsteps and um, also was addicted and homeless and uh, incarcerated several times throughout my life. And I think, you know, when I was in prison the last time, I decided that I really wanted to change my life and had a lot of support and decided I wanted to go to law school to figure out how to change these policies because here I was released with two children and not very much opportunity, really hard to find a job or a place to live because of my background. But when I finally treated the root cause of my criminal behavior, I recognized that it wasn't just me. There was hundreds and thousands of people who were also suffering with the opportunity to rebuild their lives and find a second chance. And so I went to law school, graduated near the top of my class, and then the state bar wouldn't let me sit for the exam because of my past criminal history. And so I fought to the Supreme Court and uh, unanimously, the justices agreed that I should be able to become an attorney. And so today I'm an attorney. I'm the director of a nonprofit called Civil Survival Project in Washington State. And I'm also a state representative.
0: I find the name of your organization so powerful, Civil Survival. It gets at the root of the struggle that is faced by people with criminal records who are seeking to reintegrate. Talk to us about what your organization does and what are its priorities and what you've learned from people with lived experience who are part of your organization.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the very first is the additional trauma that we've gone through now as incarcerated people. Ninety percent of women who are incarcerated are survivors of sexual abuse and sexual assault. And then you go to a place where you're dehumanized more, you're subjected to strip searches constantly. You're, um or a number not a name you're called offender you're treated in a punitive course of way ripped away from your children and it's so much more difficult there's no opportunity for healing in our prison system and so coming out you're facing an, another traumatic experience on top of the traumatic experiences that often led to the incarceration to begin with so that's you know number one and then it's transportation. A lot of times people are released in Washington with $40 and a bus ticket back to your county of origin, wherever you were convicted. And in rural communities, there's no public transportation. So how do you get around in order to go find a job or find a place to live? And then, of course, housing and employment are always the top two issues that people face. Who's going to give you a, a chance with your felony conviction record? And so many landlords will not rent to people with criminal history. You know, but the reentry never ends. Here I am. I've been out of prison for eight years. I've had tremendous success. And I still can't go on a field trip with my own children, which is really difficult because I'm trying to break down these generational cycles. And I want to be there for my kids. And they need to know that their mother loves them and wants to you know, participate in their education.
0: And I would imagine that whenever, if in every instance in your life, you have to allude to your criminal record, to something that happened eight years ago, nine years ago. You're never really able to overcome that and move on with your life in a way that's constructive. And we see some of that in the very touching ways that you describe, but also really in the data. We see that 76% of formerly incarcerated people describe finding work as very difficult or nearly impossible. We know that when they do find work, median earnings hover around $10,000 a year which is almost 20% below the federal poverty line for a single individual. Very few make more than $15,000 a year. And that doesn't even consider things like child support or wage garnishments or legal fees.
1: Yeah, I really think that criminal record is a lifetime sentence to poverty.
0: You talked about clean slate. Can you talk more about what that is and what the challenges might be to implementation?
1: Yeah, clean slate would automatically vacate the criminal record of people who are eligible. Right now in Washington state, we did pass a bill 2 years ago, the New Hope Act, which increased eligibility, so people who've been convicted of offenses can petition the court and ask them to vacate their record and Challenges to accessing the court is the issue for us. There's not enough attorneys to go around to help every individual on a one-on-one basis.
0: Right, so although theoretically you might have the right to have your records cleared in practice. You can't because you got to find a lawyer, you got to go to court, you've got to follow this. And then that's in one court, and maybe that's not applicable to some other court. Maybe it's a state court and not a local court. And so there's this tangled web of jurisdictions, all of which might have some information about your criminal record. Yeah. And it's virtually impossible to clear everything. Is that right? Yes,
1: exactly. You know, people really do need an attorney in the current state to navigate all of these barriers and complexities with our legal system. And so Clean Slate, the idea is to have the court automatically vacate the records of those who
0: are eligible. So it would be an automatic thing. So give us an example of somebody who would be eligible for expungement under Clean Slate and how would her life change? Yeah,
1: so I know a woman who had maybe five different convictions about 15 years ago has been in recovery for 15 years, is a leader in her church, and now she wants to adopt her grandchild because the daughter, the mother, is suffering with substance use disorder and the grandchild is in foster care. And she cannot adopt the grandchild because of her criminal history. And finding an attorney is very difficult and costs money and she doesn't have money. And so if the court would automatically vacate the records of all of those people, Who are eligible, these types of barriers
0: would go away. So functionally, she would not have a criminal record. Exactly. She would be clean. That's why it's called clean slate. Your slate is clean. You are forgiven. You served your sentence. You are starting anew and you don't have this baggage to carry with you for the rest of your life. You can adopt your child, you can get a job. You don't have to disclose around every corner what happened 15 years ago. Exactly.
1: I think we had estimated about 1.8 million people in Washington would have a positive benefit to their lives through this. So we're not giving up.
0: Have you found with your legislator hat on, especially given how innovative you are and how reform oriented you are, have you found pushback from any communities with respect to this goal of either expungement or record sealing or simply giving somebody a second chance after five years as you propose? Has somebody said to you things like, well, no, I would always want to know if somebody has a criminal record or I as an employer should always have the right to know if somebody has been to prison?
1: Yeah, I I have faced some pushback. I will say it's the minority view for sure. And, you know, different stakeholders have weighed their concerns and and do feel strongly about wanting to know. And sometimes victim rights advocates they feel strongly about pushing back against these policies. And there's other victim rights organizations though that understand that almost everybody who has a criminal history was a victim first. And so I think there is, you know, not a consensus amongst all stakeholders. There's some prosecutors who are really for reform and providing second chances and do see it as a public safety issue that unless we allow for opportunities, people are going to commit more crime. And I would say some police officers feel that way too. And then there's others who don't. I will say, I think in Washington state, the majority view is that we do provide opportunity for success on reentry as a way to make our communities safer.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your passion for this issue, your own experiences, and for your outstanding work in this important issue. Thanks for being with us.
1: And thank you for all you do for our world
0: too. Of all the ways having a criminal record impacts your life, the one we hear the most about is employment. There's subjective prejudice. Some employers just don't want to hire people that have been to prison. But there are also clear legal barriers that effectively bar people with records from holding certain jobs. In fact, there are more than 29,000 legal restrictions on employment across the U.S. impacting people with criminal records. To talk about that, we'll speak with Dana Berliner. She's the Senior Vice President and Litigation Director at the Institute for Justice, a leading organization that focuses on safeguarding individual liberty. Dana, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Now, the Institute for Justice calls itself the National Law Firm for Liberty. And indeed, you pursue numerous avenues to defend individual liberty, from school choice to free speech to economic liberty. Tell me, what is it about occupational licensing in particular that prompted IJ's involvement and passion for the issue?
2: So what you do for a living is one of the critical defining features of people's lives and a a huge source of personal happiness and fulfillment. So it's very important that people be able to pursue the occupations of their choice. That's how you can provide for yourself, your family, create a better world for your children. And what we've discovered is that Occupational licensing has become more and more of a barrier to people pursuing their chosen occupations.
0: Now, your work really runs the gamut. You see this experience from tax preparers to florists to traditional hair braiders and sort of everything in between. You seem to really hit upon an issue that touches the lives of many people who are trying to create a better tomorrow for themselves. Talk about some of your cases and what you've learned and some of your victories.
2: So one of the things that we've found is, although there's certainly occupational licensing at all levels, surprisingly, the barriers to entry are very high, often at the lowest rungs of the economic ladder, meaning people who want to start moving up in the world have pretty severe barriers to entry. And cosmetology is a classic example of that. It is not an occupation that ought to require hardly anything to get into. And yet it takes far longer in training to become a cosmetologist than it does to become, for example, an emergency medical technician or even a paramedic.
0: And really I mean if we take 10 steps back and look at the big picture the reason to require a license is to ensure that an individual has the requisite background set of skills knowledge etc to safely perform a job is that right that's right although for many
2: occupations there's not much of a safety issue the bars on people with convictions are not really meant to protect the public they are just yet another way of keeping people out of the profession so that people who are already in the profession will not have competition. We've represented a number of people who wanted to engage in casket sales, not to be full-fledged funeral directors, but just to sell the box. And in many states, you needed to have a funeral director's license, which again was years of study in order to do essentially retail sales. It's just a box. You do not need to spend three years in school to learn to sell a box. Florists in Louisiana for many years were required to pass both a practical and a written exam in order to show they could combine two types of flowers together or more. And they were graded by their competitors or their would-be competitors. And it was very difficult. People had more trouble passing the florist exam than, uh, than the bar
0: exam. You published a landmark study called License to Work that really detailed the licensing barriers for over 100 low and moderate income occupations. What are you seeing from a policy perspective now that you've brought awareness to this issue, both from a research angle and a litigation angle?
2: We're seeing that legislatures have trouble making the change and they tend to do it on a occupation by occupation basis rather than a more sweeping reduction in licensing laws. And there is very powerful opposition to change from people who are already in the professions, and they will fight tooth and nail to keep the barriers to entry as high as possible. But absolutely, I mean, I do think that legislatures are recognizing that the restrictions on occupations for people who have been convicted of a crime are in many cases very broad. And they don't take into account perhaps how long ago the conviction occurred. They don't take into account whether what the person was convicted in has any relationship to the occupation they want to go
0: into. I want to talk about a recent case where you've had somewhat of a setback, which is the California firefighter case. Tell us about that case and where you stand in the district court.
2: Okay, so we are representing two men who trained in prison to become firefighters. So they trained in prison and they worked as firefighters while they were in prison. After they got out, they turned their lives around. They took extensive training to become firefighters. They took courses in becoming an EMT, which is one of the prerequisites for being a firefighter. They took exams and passed them. But California has a law that bars people who have two or more felonies for absolutely anything any kind of felony whatsoever, from ever getting an EMT certification. And without an EMT certification, you cannot be a full-time firefighter.
0: The weird thing is that you can be a part-time firefighter. You can be an emergency firefighter. You can be a seasonal firefighter. You just can't reap the benefits of full-time employment with, you know, pension benefits and the other suite of protections that full-time employment brings. So you brought a challenge in the federal district court. It was a constitutional challenge, as I understand it. We
2: argued in federal court that the law was not rational because it didn't take into account whether the person had been rehabilitated, and it did not take into account whether the crimes of which they were convicted were in any way relevant to firefighting.
0: Now, as I understand legal argument and not to get too in the weeds. But of course, the standard of review is relatively low in this case. It's really rational basis review, right? So the state only had to prove that the bar is rationally related to a legitimate government interest. And I was struck by the court's ruling, which said, and I'll quote, that plaintiffs fail to acknowledge that the very act of committing a felony more than once, regardless of the underlying offense, can be relevant. Because people with two felony convictions, quote, have a proven unwillingness to conform to the social norm to do no harm to others. What do you think of that? It seems to me that the court is saying, look, we'll defer to the state. And it's not absolutely crazy to hold the belief that somebody who has two felony convictions is not somebody we want. So despite the name Rational
2: Basis Review, The courts really do not require that there be anything that anyone else would call rational in the way of a connection between the law and its supposed goal. So the court said, as you quoted, "Eh, people who committed two felonies about anything at all are probably not as good of people as people who have committed less than two felonies. And... You know, I can kind of see that maybe there would be a difference between people who were convicted or who served within 10 years and not. And that's good enough. And the court acknowledged that this was going to include lots of people who were qualified to go into the occupations. But the court said, you know, if it's over inclusive, that's not our problem. Take it up with the legislature. That's unfortunately how a lot of courts. Interpret "quote unquote" rational basis review really irrational basis review in some of these instances,
0: but it's really sort of it's deferring to the state legislature, right? It's sort of saying, well, you know, rational to me means not insane. Yes, it seems to me where their argument falls apart somewhat is in the fact that they allow these people to be seasonal firefighters. So if there were some consistency in the law, or at least in the law as applied then you would say, okay, well, you know, California doesn't want, believes that these people aren't as good as other people. People with two felonies aren't as trustworthy or whatever else. And so we don't want them to be firefighters at all. But where it gets sticky, is, it seems to me, is that they do use them for emergencies. They do use them as seasonal firefighters. They just don't want to incorporate them into a landscape that gives them more benefits.
2: Absolutely, And I mean, for that matter, they do EMT type work as well. I should mention in California, for example, EMTs don't even have access to drugs, so that's not an issue. It's more just a thought of like, maybe they'll hurt somebody, but there's no reason to think that's true, and the courts don't look, and the board doesn't look, and no one actually considers the individual at all.
0: Well, Dana, I so appreciate you spending time with us. Discussing these important issues and their connection with individual liberty and pursuing our dreams and pursuing our livelihoods to the best that we can. So I applaud your work and your dedication to shattering these barriers and improving opportunity, increasing opportunity for all of us. So thank you so much for being on Deep Dive. We so appreciate it. Thank you. Our next guest is a sociologist whose research on mass incarceration explores the intersection of race, poverty, crime control, and social welfare policy. Reuben Jonathan Miller is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice. His new book is Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. Reuben, welcome to Deep Dive, and congratulations on the book.
3: Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: You've often characterized mass incarceration as a problem of citizenship. Tell us what you mean.
3: Yeah. When I was following people, there were some things that occurred to me. You know, on on the one hand, there was pretty constant and consistent experiences of rejection. And so my question at that point was, well, what does it mean when the social policy is no? What does it mean when people are always telling you you can't do something? You can't rent a house or you can't work in a country that tells us that one should draw their sense of identity? From their ability to provide for themselves, for their family, for the people they care for. And all this exclusion said something very powerful to me, which was that we've made a world in which there's no place for people. (laughs) There's no place for them to live. There's no place for them to work. There's no place for them to spend time with their family in the way that they choose. There are restrictions on whom they can associate with. There's nowhere for them to belong. Well, belonging is the root of citizenship. Citizenship really, at the end of the day, is about belonging. It's about belonging to a political community. It's about being able to fully participate in that community. It's about having the freedoms one needs to fend for themselves and to take care of the people they love. And so what we've done is we've treated mass incarceration as if it's a problem of behavior, but really, if we attend to it, mass incarceration is really about our failure as a society to make a place in which people who we're afraid of belong. And this starts very early, very early in the life course for most people who I met.
0: Ruben, you speak so eloquently and powerfully in your book about how you came to this work. Share with our listeners how you got to where you are in your work and in your advocacy.
3: I started doing work as a volunteer chaplain at the Cook County Jail. So I wanted to know, like, how do we get to a place where I start seeing people who look like me? Not only people who look like me, people from my neighborhood are moving in and out of this location because I'm born poor and Black after 1972, um, the year when mass incarceration begins in earnest. So I decided to study it, to study mass incarceration as a sociologist. And when I'm in the middle of my field work, I meet my father who had been incarcerated for 20 years. I didn't know him before. And eventually, as I'm doing my research, my brother, my brother's incarcerated. And so I write the book trying to care for him as I follow people who are caring for their loved ones.
0: Can you share with us what the real life interactions were within the confines of this system that doesn't allow them to overcome their past?
3: The people who I met started getting arrested around 11 years old, and they'd be arrested multiple times. So on the one hand, there's the question of overcoming one's past. So after you've gone to jail or prison, you come back and then there are 45,000 laws and policies that prevent you from doing the kinds of things that would keep you out of jail or prison. The things that we say are related to that produce what we would call criminogenic risk. So all the criminologists in the country know that precarity contributes to crime and criminality. Ask any criminologist worth assault, they will tell you that. And so all these things that we do. Produce the kinds of precarity that produce the kinds of crime that we then go and arrest people for later. Okay, so that's one side of it. But for many people, this started very young. So, on the one hand, it's overcoming one's past. On the other hand, it's overcoming the presumption of guilt that we see in one's prior life in the very beginning of their lives. And so, my guys will start getting arrested 10, 11, 12 years old. One guy in particular, Martin, who spent time homeless, was arrested young and he was arrested often because he was homeless. He had been arrested 14 times for trespassing. Once branded a felon, Martin has a terrible time trying to rent a home. It's almost impossible for him to land on his feet to rent an apartment because there's a record that follows him, as we know, and that if you have a felony record, then landlords have the right to exclude you from leases, from their rent rolls, etc. They have the right to evict you if they find out that you had a felony record. They have a right to evict your family. If they find out that you have a felony record and you've been sleeping on the couch of your mother, for example, that many grandmothers have been evicted. This is because of the legal apparatus that we've produced. And this is also because of how we think and feel about people who've caused harm.
0: One of the summaries of your book that I read had this line that I thought was very captivating, which said that life after incarceration is its own form of prison. And that really resonated with me because it and what you're speaking about really resonates with me in that we were creating this system where someone simply doesn't have a choice. Someone doesn't have anywhere to go. We don't have a safety net to support somebody in his or her most vulnerable time. And of course, what you're discussing is more about root causes, not just reentry or reintegration, but really the system that is creating the circumstances that put somebody there in the first place. So it's from a policy perspective. From the perspective of somebody who wants to do something about it, help me understand how you start cracking this overwhelming problem. Where do you start if you want to do something today?
3: Attacking what we might call the collateral consequences of criminal conviction is a wonderful strategy, and we see this happening in many places. In Cook County, they've started asking questions about whether or not it's reasonable to ask people about felony records on housing applications. Ann Arbor, a small city in Michigan, they've banned the act of asking about criminal records in housing applications. Another thing that we see that's very important are incentives for people to hire people with criminal records. I think that we need an audit of these some 45,000 laws, policies, and sanctions. I think we have to commit to a social policy that does no harm. That's on the back end of things if we were to think about, you know, sort of the timing of it. The presumption that that this is a linear process, that people make a mistake or engage in a crime, go to prison, come out, and then face a set of things, which is true to some extent. But as I mentioned, people are getting arrested very early on. So on the front end of the thing, we might think about that police-citizen interaction. We might think about what things we consider to be crimes to begin with. And why we think those things are crimes, we might think about retroactively applying some of the reforms that we've already done. So, for example, we've decriminalized marijuana in the state of Illinois. One major thing that they did when they decriminalized marijuana, and I don't think this is nearly enough. I mean, not from my vantage, but one thing they did, which was radical and powerful and incredible, was that they made the decriminalization retroactive. This is something we hardly ever see in the policy world where you say, whoops, I made a mistake. (laughs) Let's now think about the ripple effects of what that means. Let's now detangle people from the manacles of this thing, going back from before this moment that I made the decision.
0: It feels to me that part of this issue, when we think about restrictions in housing, for example, at a very, very high level, somebody somewhere thought it would be a really good idea to not have felons in public housing. Because there was a time in our history when the party line was that felons are dangerous and we don't want them, quote unquote, polluting or tainting the rest of at risk communities, right? Like that was sort of a movement. So I think to me, this conversation comes back to the reintegration piece because it is that sentiment, that feeling that somehow felons are dangerous is in the back of the minds of a lot of legislators and maybe a lot of voters. And so, how do we think about that? How do we get at people? so that we change the narrative.
3: I think we have to have honest, mature discussions about violence and harm, about who's the victim of it, about the circumstances that produce it, and about what our responses to it do. And so right now, what we've done is in response to a fear of crime, is we've created conditions of greater precarity that end up producing more crime. Okay, having said that, the logical argument isn't the thing that gets the job done, right? Like, I I don't think this is what you're pointing to. Absolutely. No, I'm I'm on board with you 100%. I think the problem is our very shallow discussion of crimes of violence, of its impact, and of who these people are. So in the reform world, we have largely not exclusively but largely in the reform world people have largely talked about reforms especially among politicians for non-violent non-serious non-sexual offenders and we haven't wrestled with the fact that over half of all prisoners are in prison for a crime of what we would call violence some people's response to that is to say well look the things we're calling violent you know it's really sticky it's not really violence this that i'm saying no meet the thing take it head on People have been harmed. People have been killed. People have been raped. Things happen. People do awful things. The question for us is as a society to decide what we do with those people. What we've done is we have this knee-jerk response to all kinds of crime out of this position of fear without ever really grappling with the costs of it. What I'm trying to say is that the narrative discussion has to include the real stuff, the hard stuff, the fact that people make bad decisions and bad choices. The question is an ethical question. What kind of country do we want? Do we want a country that produces greater amounts of exclusion? Do we want a country that produces a place where people belong, even people who have caused us harm? And from that place, from that moral place from that ethical place to make decisions about law and policy.
0: And I think probably it's important to understand and to acknowledge that there's some legitimacy to that fear, right? I think we wouldn't be human if we weren't afraid of people who had done something bad. That's not a policy answer. It's a human reaction. But I think I agree with you that we have to approach this issue from a vantage point of both realism and empathy and also pragmatism, right? I mean, these are members of our community, whether we like it or not. We either leave them, let them languish in prison, or we reintegrate them in our community and we give them the tools and the safety net to become productive members of society. But there's almost like no middle ground, right? We either embrace it and deal with it, or we stick it in. We decide that we're that country that's going to leave these people to rot in prison because we don't think that they deserve better.
3: No, that's absolutely right. And there's this unreflexive, knee-jerk response to the idea of the criminal. This is the thing, I think, that that has to be taken on. Because we need that person to take a positive, active role in society when they eventually come home, because 95% of those folks are going to come home, even after the 20, 30, 40, 50-year sentence.
0: Absolutely understood. And Reuben, I think you do a phenomenal job in your book, casting light on many of those issues. And I so much appreciate your work. I appreciate your scholarship. Thank you. And it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Ruben Jonathan Miller. I also want to thank Tara Simmons and Dana Berliner for their insights into the challenges people with criminal records face and the path forward. For more about reintegration reform, check out ArnoldVentures.org. This has been Deep Dive the production of Arnold Ventures, where we are dedicated to tackling some of the most pressing problems in the United States. I'm Laura Arnold. Thanks for listening.